I have a loaded message, <laughs> and I have 10 minutes to share about our youth program, and I hope about 20 on a little sermon. So um, you can pray now that I don't get the gift of gab and I get those two things done. So this morning, I just wanted to share our heart at Victory for this fall for the youth programming. And I've, through a number of resources and a number of people over the course of the summer and this past spring, really have been praying and seeking the Lord on how we can even change and even do a better job of discipling our children and our youth. And one thing that was really on my heart was to raise the youth to be really resilient disciples of Jesus. And it was a combination of a book I read and then another resource that Solveig Bader put me in contact with. And it just resonated in my heart in a powerful way. So something that just really focuses my time and my attention when I'm looking at the youth is raising resilient disciples. And what does that mean? Resilient disciples are Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live in an abundant life in the Spirit. And that's really my heart. I know that's our heart as a church, to raise these children and these youth to be resiliently faithful amidst this increasingly challenging culture and then to live that abundant life. That's what we talk about at Victory almost every Sunday. What that looks like is an abundant life in the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And a couple things that shaped this definition and a couple things that shaped decision-making was in the next slide. Um, There is an increasing group of people in their young adult years who either completely reject the gospel and turn away or just become habitual churchgoers go to church every now and then. And the statistics were quite alarming to me, and this is data, and I sourced them. It's out of the Resilient book. It's um, a research put together by the Awana program. And of their survey and of their data, between the ages of 18 and 29-year-olds who identified as Christians, they grew up as a Christian going to church whatever that meant for their family, they identified as Christians. And of all of those surveyed, 22% in those years totally reject the gospel completely. They turn away, they reject it, they become, you know, this would be the camp of an atheist or agnostic, reject it completely. Um, 30% of those in that age range don't, completely reject it, but just kind of drift away. They would still say they're a Christian, but are they doing anything actively to live out their faith? No. And then 38%, according to their research, were habitual churchgoers. So they go to church pretty regularly, but the biggest difference between the churchgoers and the 10% who are actually resilient disciples is that the churchgoers don't say that their faith changes their daily life. So they go to church, they may even know the truth, but Monday through Friday, the Bible isn't where they go for absolute truth. 
It's not changing their daily decision-making in their daily lives. Um, that was really alarming to me as a parent. You know, my heart for the youth programs are really being shaped as well as being a parent now. Funny how that works. But you just have an increased desire for the children and the youth to know the Word of God and to love the Lord Jesus in a powerful way. And I don't know about you, but as a parent, I certainly don't want to raise my children to be churchgoers. I have a much more desire to see them to become resilient disciples of Jesus, living the abundant life in the spirit that we talk about. And so when you look at the data and you look at these camps of people, what are the behaviors of the resilient disciples? What happened in their homes and their upbringing that would cause, at least help, them to become a resilient disciple. And one of them, and it's very distinctive to the resilient disciples versus just the churchgoers, is talking to Jesus. Talking to Jesus. They're re-energized when they spend time with Jesus. Their prayer life is not just speaking, but it's also listening to Jesus. Cultural discernment. They use the word of God as the compass for what is right and wrong. See, that was a big difference between the churchgoers and the resilient disciples. They use the word of God to make cultural decisions. And number three, another one that I identified was meaningful relationships. Now, this is where your church body and your Bible studies and your small groups and your discipleship groups and your academy classes come into play. They need to be in relationship with other believers, to be encouraged, to be challenged. So when you look at those behaviors, and you think about it for a second, kids, on average, even the churchgoers or the resilient disciples, are in church maybe like six hours a month. Think about that. I mean, between a Sunday morning and maybe you're plugged in really faithfully on a Wednesday night here. And even if you're a good church family, It's becoming less and less nowadays because of all the conflict. And so maybe six hours a week, your kids are in a church facility. So what does that say? That says that these behaviors, talking to Jesus, using the word of God as a compass for right and wrong, those things need to happen in the home. They need to happen in the home. And I know that, and you know that. But at the same time, to see the data to support that was really something powerful in my mind. So at Victory, we really need to have a church and home partnership. And now more than ever, with just the nature of what we went through this past spring, it was really, really apparent to me that we really need to strengthen our programming to help you as parents disciple your children. Because I can't do it. The Sunday school teachers can't do it. And heaven forbid we'd have another COVID outbreak and you're at home for three months. It's got to be at home. And so with that, that's why Victory, you know, pours into parents on life groups or academy classes and tries to disciple in those small group situations. But also from a curriculum standpoint, I looked at how can we give parents the tools and encourage you and equip you to carry out the gospel and teach your children in the homes. And that is what led uh, the decision in 
uh, strengthening an at-home piece to the curriculum here at Victory. So on Wednesday nights, when we are going to gather, for those that are comfortable gathering, uh, for youth group this fall, as of now, and things change weekly, but as of now, we are planning to have, for those who are comfortable, come to church for our Wednesday night programming, but you can also take part in that programming at home online. Um, So there's going to be two options for your kids. You can pick which one you're most comfortable with. But the at-home piece is crucial, and we we decided to incorporate the Awana program in the third through sixth grade students. So if you have a third through sixth grade student, um, this year your student will be participating in the Awana program. Now, Awana has been around for a while. Who has heard of that program? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's really common. Um, even when I was a little girl, I think I have a vague memory of earning jewels and vests and things. I like that, but that's just me. Some people, you know, the jewel doesn't really get them going. But um, for me, it was. It was an incentive. But the one has been around for a long time. And you probably have the old school model in your head of what that means. And there's two things that have really changed in the Awana program that really excited me. One, they're still very, very Bible-based, and yes, the Bible memory piece is important, but they've lightened it in the way that there's a track for everyone to, like, memorize one verse, and then there's the extra credit for the overachievers to run in their lane, and you just keep going, okay? And then another thing that really really resonated with me is they've really poured in that relational piece into their programming, Like, if you need to stop in the program and pray for someone in the middle of the lesson, that's more important than finishing the five points. They've really poured into the relational piece. So there's two reasons that we're going to do the WANA program with the third through sixth graders. One is Bible literacy. Man, they are in the Word of God every day when they're here at church, and then they take this little book home, and then there's a silver page, parents, that you sit down at your tables and do with them. And then the book comes here, and it goes home, and it comes here, and it goes home. And if you're doing it at home, then a leader is actually going to call or video chat you during the week. And you're going to take the reins of your child's discipleship at your table at home. And that's really the heart of the program. And so whether we're physically in the building or we're not, we're going to follow the program. Whether there's a blizzard that keeps us home in the middle of January or not, we're going to do that lesson on Wednesday night. And it might be at your dining room table. (laughs) But that excites me. Because the data just said that it has to be at home. It can't be just here. So we're going to ask, I'm so excited, Solve Bader has uh, experience in the Awana program. She's going to be our Awana director. And I'm thrilled to have Solve doing that. Um, What an asset to the program. And her and I will be in the foyer afterward, wearing our masks, answering any questions you have. And if you want to register your kids for youth group, I'll even have my laptop out and we can do that today. But all kids, K through 12, whether they're doing the Awana curriculum or not, are going to have an at-home piece. So they're going to take something home with them to do that week to follow up with their faith at home. So... I'm excited about that. I hope you are. When you're sharing kids, when they're given these little Bible verses to share at home, are your kids always going to be really, really excited to do it? No. I'm just going to be honest. They're not going to be always jumping at the seams to memorize their Bible verse. 
But what I really, really want to encourage you in is tell them why. And tell them the real, unfiltered reason why we're learning the Bible. And why we're learning the Bible is because the Bible is alive, and it's active, and it's powerful, and it will transform their lives. We're learning the Bible because not to get the jewel or the badge. Yes, that's a superficial motivation for some people. But we're learning the Bible because on hard days, that Bible verse will give them hope, joy, and peace. That Bible verse, if they will take it from their minds and place it in their heart, will change the way they address the culture around them. The Bible has power to transform their lives for the rest of their lives. And that's why they're learning it. And so if you can tell them that, if you can tell them that we're learning this Bible verse, Bobby, because when you are ridden with anxiety someday in school or out at recess, if you've memorized the verse in Philippians that says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, Bobby, will transform your life. Right? Those are the reasons we're memorizing it. Or when you're scared, you're scared out of your mind, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but you've memorized the verse that God will never leave me, he will never forsake me. Those are the reasons why we're memorizing it, so that you can live them, so you can be a disciple of Jesus. Give him the bigger reason why. And I'm certain that even if you don't see it at first, (laughs) they will thank you later in life. I heard from some children that went through the WANA program before, and the memory verses that they learn as children come back to them just like that. It's us older people that it takes a little hard. Takes a little more time, but they're sponges and they will stay with them the rest of their lives. So, resilient disciples. There was a resilient disciple of God, of Yahweh, in the Old Testament that we're going to look at today. And his name was Elijah. And we're going to be in 1 Kings, and we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you want to turn there now, you can. 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to look at a familiar story. And this is a familiar story to a lot of Sunday school classrooms. And you probably have a vague memory of this story if you were in Sunday school at any point in your life. But let me give you a little background. King Eli- or Prophet Elijah here is going before a king, Ahab. And where we're at in Kings right now is they are in a divided kingdom. What does this mean? Well, God's people, the Israelites, who served the Lord, who served Yahweh, had King Saul and King David and King Solomon, and they were one one group of people. And then during um, Solomon's son's reign, the kingdom divided. And what happened was Solomon's son got a little bit too cocky, and he... Uh, the people were complaining and they were murmuring that they were being worked too hard, they were being taxed too hard. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, got the council together 
and decided not to follow their counsel. And so took in a bunch of young bucks and asked them for their counsel. He didn't change, and so then there was a rebellion. So then Jeroboam broke away with ten tribes of his own, and they broke. And so we have a divided kingdom. And this is where we're at in Scripture. And throughout the divided kingdom, this wasn't God's heart for his people to divide, but this was a consequence of sin. And so the seed of division started in Solomon's life. When Solomon was reigning as king, we know that he was faithful to God in the beginning, but the pleasures of the world enticed him. He ended up with over a 100 wives and concubines, and the riches of the world distracted him, and his heart was divided. Therefore, there was consequence to that, which his son also reaped, and the kingdom divided. Well, God, in his great mercy, would always send prophets. Prophets were men that would come, and they would, you know, try to lead the people back to God's heart. They would prophesy to the king of the time what could happen if they didn't return to the Lord. They would foretell what could happen if they didn't repent, etc. And that's who Elijah is. Elijah is a prophet. And he is going to go before this evil king Ahab. And King Ahab is ruling in Israel, and he's not a good king. He has also fallen into false worship because of his wife, uh, Jezebel. And they are worshiping false gods, Baal, to be specific. It's a pagan god, and the people believe that this false god would bring them rain and would bring them, uh, would, that that god would control the skies, and they would produce good crops if they would just pray and worship this false god, Baal. So that's what they're doing. They're in false false worship, worshiping false gods. And so Elijah, as a man of God, is, is going to go to King Ahab and address this. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at in Scripture. That was probably too much background. But i got to know where I'm at in order to pick up. So here we are. So we're in chapter 18. And Elijah is going before the King Ahab. Chapter 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab thinks Elijah is trouble because there was a drought. And Ahab thinks it's Elijah's fault. It's not his fault. It's a drought because the people are being disobedient. But that's why he calls him a troubler of Israel. Is that you, you troublemaker? And Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the false Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400, and 400 prophets of Esherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Esherah is just a female goddess, false god, just like Baal. Um, so Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mar- Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow me. But if Baal is God, follow him. I don't know, women, have you ever given your husband an ultimatum? (laughs) I've never done that. Um, But this is what he's doing. He's saying, listen up, people, it's time to choose. You're trying to do both. 
and you can't. If, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. It's time to make a choice. Elijah is an amazing man of God, okay? He's devoted to God. Prior to him addressing Ahab, he uh, he was in the healing ministry long before Jesus' time in the New Testament. He was staying with a widow, and the widow's son became ill and died, and he prayed to God to resurrect that boy, and he was. So Elijah was in communication with God. He was in the healing ministry. He was a prophet, uh, fearful of the Lord in a good way. He also is one of two people in the entire Bible that actually went to heaven without dying. God sent him a chariot of fire, another great Bible story, but seriously sent him horses to ride away to heaven on. So this is an amazing, amazing man of God that goes before King Ahab. So what, what is the dilemma here? He just gave him a choice, right? And I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. I'm going to summarize it for you. And you probably know how this ends, but this is what happens. So he says, choose, choose a God. And he said, why don't you go first? You make an altar to Baal and I'll make an altar to God. And let's see which God answers in fire. And whoever answers in fire, that will be the God we serve. So they go first and they create an altar and they create their altar and they put their wood and they put their bull as a sacrifice to the false prophet Baal and they cry out to him and they cry out and Elijah even mocks them a little bit and goes, oh, he can't even hear you. Scream a little louder and they scream a little louder. Nothing, of course, right? Nothing happens at all. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah takes 12 stones and he places them for the um, 12 tribes of Israel. In his mind, they're still united. I mean, I think that's very symbolic. The divided kingdom was never God's plan. It was a result of sin. But he takes the 12 stones, then he puts the wood, then he puts the bull on it. And then even to make it even more supernatural and without even question for the people, he even lets them pour water on his. Just soak the wood. Let's just make sure that no one says that I had a match in my pocket or something, right? Like, let's just, let's just soak it with water. And so he does that. And he cries out to the Lord. And he cries out, Lord, let it be known that you are God. And sure enough, you know the story, God answers in fire, just sets the altar ablaze. And when the, when the altar is burned up, all the people lay down prostrate and said, wow, surely he is Lord. And that is the story. We know that story. But what, what stuck out the most when I read this account several months ago now, was the question that he put before the people at the beginning. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two gods? It was a choice time. It was choice time. It's kind of the time when you are maybe dating and things are getting serious with your significant other and there's a little pressure there and it's time to seal the deal. It's time to buy the ring and make it official, 
right? We're all faced with choices. But we don't like hard choices. Most of us would rather not make hard choices, right? Most of us would rather comfortably walk in both because it's more comfortable. It's easier a lot of times. But Elijah is saying you got to choose. And the same problems that these people were having are the same problems that are throughout Scripture from the beginning of time all the way to the end. We see over and over and over, and sometimes you can just, oh, you just want to beat your head against the wall with Israelites sometimes because it's like good king, bad king, good king, bad king, prophet, repent, repent, repent. Then they disobey again, and then good king, bad king, you know, and they fall into false worship, and then another prophet, and it's just like you just want to go, what are you doing? But the same problems are here today. The same problems were in the New Testament. Paul, you know, addresses many churches that are falling into false teaching, falling into false worship, getting lukewarm. And then even in Revelation, we know that there's churches that are addressed that have forsaken their first love. So this temptation of just getting lazy getting lukewarm, walking in both. I know it's it's just more apparent when, when the Israelites are actually making physical altars or making physical calves, golden calves, to worship. Well, we do the same thing. The same pattern in our heart has been since Adam and Eve to the churches in Revelation. It's easy to fall asleep. It's easy to... To become lukewarm. It's easy to start entertaining the desires of the culture like King Solomon did. Oh, she was kind of cute. Oh, it's okay. Those are the attitudes of the human heart if we don't guard them. The inward divided heart was much more deadly than the outward attack to these people. You know, It was because of their divided heart that they reaped consequences. There's consequences with sin. There's repentance and forgiveness, but they had to live in the consequences of their sin because of the choices they made. And the same holds true to us today. We have that choice. We have that choice every single day. And a lot of us, a lot of us like that picture We have one foot here in God's lane, and we have one foot here in the world. And we're trying really, really hard to straddle both. We're trying really, really hard to walk both, just like these people were. They knew, these people, generational storytelling, they knew what is right and wrong. They knew of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew what was right and wrong. It was their very being, the culture. They deliberately forsook what was taught to them. And they were compromising. They were worshiping these false gods. And a lot of us try to do that. I've certainly been there. (laughs) It's not comfortable. We deceive ourselves in thinking that that's easier, and it's not. It's actually really hard to try to do both. We think it's easier, but it's the deception of the enemy. And I wanted to point out, too, earlier, 
when he said, if the Lord is God, that word Lord is something that we often don't talk about. And really, that's the heart of this issue right here. Trying to walk two lives, trying to walk two lines, God and the world. What it comes down is the question that Elijah said, is God Lord? Because you can admit that there's a God. You can say that there's a God. You can believe in a God and not make him Lord of your life. What I mean by that? Well, when you call someone Lord, um, that person has an authority, has a power to them. You know, we see even, I was just watching like an old movie, and they would call it Lord whoever, you know, Lord Mike or Lord Robert. And, you know, it holds a place of authority. And if you're going to call someone Lord, then you're submitting to them. And so a lot of times what's happening in the hearts of the Israelites and what's happening in the hearts of us today is that we're not making him Lord. And that's what Elijah was asking the people. Make him Lord. You need to submit to one God. There's an area of submission here. And and when we submit, we lay down the things that we're carrying. We decide in our hearts to follow. And that is usually what we try to avoid. I don't know what it is, but it's something about, like, human nature that we just, I just, oh, I just really don't want to go there. And some of us are more stubborn than others. But we're just, like, it just sometimes we're just carrying it, you know, like, almost on our foot, you know. And we'll just drag that stinking thing around for the longest time. Because we've deceived ourselves to think that that is somehow easier than running in the grace and forgiveness and freedom and abundant life that Jesus has for us when we just kick that stinking thing aside. And that is just what's been on my heart, and I know that's what is on God's heart, and it has been from Genesis to Revelation, over and over through prophet, through New Testament men of God and women of God, he keeps telling the people, would you just surrender? Just repent. There's so much more for you than what you're doing. And and during this time, during this whole time of being more at home than out in the public, being more in than out, and seeing what is going on around the world, I really believe that God is refining the church. He's coming down with fire. And he wants to know who's in it. And he wants to know who is deciding that he is Lord. Not just God. Because even the demons say that. But he wants to know who is saying, you are Lord of my life. And I'm going to surrender everything I got to you. And he's refining the church who's ready to be his bride. In the end, we're described as his bride. He's the bridegroom, and the church is the bride of Christ when he returns. And he's saying, who's going to be my bride? Who's going to be all dressed in white and righteous and redeemed and holy and focused? You know, when I was locking up, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. 
I know, you probably saw on Facebook. But um, we just celebrated. Our, and then Chris, he is so good to me. He took pictures for it. He did all the things, which he always has. But I remember when I was walking down this very aisle, I mean, I had razor focus on him standing up here. Man, I'd waited a long time for that. <laughs> I had. We've gotten through college, ufta. But I had waited a long time for that day. And I had razor focus up that aisle. I was even shaking, and Dad was just clinging to me. And we were coming up the aisle. And that's what Jesus wants. It's like, do you have your eye on the groom? He wants that razor focus. And... And the world, just like the Israelites, time. doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter. Oh, it'll come in something. The world will tempt you and distract you and plead for your time and your attention and your talents. And it's like the Lord is saying what Elijah told Ahab and the people that day is the same message today. Will you make him Lord of your life? Will you make him Lord? I've been convicted this week preparing this message. I know what I'm going to surrender. Absolutely do. So if you want to contact me, please text me or call me. Because my Facebook app isn't going to be on my phone anymore. I don't know what it is in your life. But what is stealing your gaze? What is stealing your razor focus on Jesus? I'm going to have Laura come up, and she's going to play for us a little bit. I kind of want us just to stand. So please stand if you're able. And I thought we would just kind of quiet our hearts. Before the Lord. And I'm going to pray. She's going to play. But I think when we quiet our hearts, actually, I know when we quiet our hearts and ask the Lord what is stealing our gaze, what is stealing our attention, what has gotten us entrapped in the world, He will reveal it to our hearts. So let's just start there. God, we just come to you today. We surrender to your will. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would convict our hearts. Reveal what we are dragging behind us. Reveal the chains that you just want to break today in our lives. Reveal the addictions we've either knowingly or unknowingly gotten into just take a moment right now personally just to ask the Lord just personally There's a few people here that, and at home, actually, I'm seeing a couch in the living room. Um, 
I think there's a few people that you're just going, it was almost like a fresh revelation today. You didn't even realize it was happening, but you're saying, how did I end up here? It was just like, whoa, you're right. My Bible collects dust on the end table. My prayer life is about just bless this food to our bodies, and that's the extent of it. And you didn't even realize you ended up there, but you're there in that moment, and you're, you're, you want something more. And God is saying that there is more. Just surrender it today. Tell him that, that he is Lord, and you will follow him. I think there's a few people here today that have an addiction of some kind. And man, you've tried in your own strength over and over and over to give up that addiction. You name it. Gambling, pornography, oh, it could be anything. Heck, it could be Facebook. (laughs) You've tried to get rid of your addiction on your own. But the Lord is saying, Today is your day that you let the Holy Spirit break the chains of addiction. So right now I pray in the name of Jesus, if that is you, you say, Holy Spirit, break the chains of addiction in my life right now in Jesus' name. I am set free. I am your child. And I'm going to run after you. majority of us it's maybe not a full-blown addiction it's maybe even something really good in your life but it's taken way way too much time maybe it's your binge watching Netflix series and you haven't touched your Bible all week and God is just saying oh you're cheating yourself I have so much more for you Don't you know that living for Jesus is the most exciting thing you could ever do? Don't you know that you're going to be so full of joy and peace and patience and kindness when you seek me instead of that Netflix series? I have a life for you and I have an abundant life. Shut that TV off. (laughs) Because I have more for you than it. It's so good. The heart of the Father is good. He is for you. Wherever you're at, I put out your hands, put up your hands, and just give it to the Lord today. And say, Jesus, I am all you yours. I am all yours. Would you be Lord of my life? I submit to you. I want to be your bride walking up the aisle with razor-sharp focus, all for your glory. Amen.